It's a really strange text, this, isn't it? If you've arrived at perhaps visiting on an Easter Sunday and you find us in the book of Leviticus, you might think that's a really strange place to be. Uh, but I guess what we've been wanting to do over a short series is tie some threads of the storyline of God speaking to His people way back. Uh, and by going way back, we see the significance of Jesus and His death on the cross. And so we enter into a strange world of the ancient Near East. Let's place ourselves for just a few minutes in that world. Not necessarily the Hebrew world. Let's place ourselves in the general world of the Near East. We are surrounded by the idea of sacrifice. We look back into the ancient world and we find that pretty much every people group across the world have engaged in the idea of sacrifice. There is something, something deeply written into our human experience. The need to appease. The desire to appease. The recognition that there is a cost to the troubles that we are as people. To the problems that we are. The Canaanites, the Egyptians, the Sumerians, the Aztecs, the Yoruba. Right across the world we see this angst-ridden attempt to appease. That's what we see in the general culture. Uh, and then we come to this particular part of the Bible. And we see a marked change when we come to this particular part of the Bible. When, let's have a look at Leviticus chapter 4 and verse 2. Let's see what it says there. God speaks to Moses and he says this, Say to the Israelites, when anyone sins unintentionally and did, does what is forbidden... In it. Let's start that again, shall we? Let's get my teeth in. Say to the Israelites, when anyone sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, do this. Against the backdrop of surrounding ubiquitous sacrifice where there is a response in the people groups to try to find a way to appease, where sacrifice is the done experience, where sacrifice is what we do, whether that's animals, whether it's grain, whether it's wine, whether it's human beings that we sacrifice, across that ancient world, the angst-ridden response is to sacrifice, we have a difference here. Because rather than trying to find a way to appease, God says, do this. This is what you are to do. That is a remarkably different experience that God's people are in. Our human nature, in the same way as the surrounding people, is laid bare. We have the real notion that we are a people who are bereft of reconciliation with the divine. And rather than scrambling around to try to find a way to respond, we see here God giving us directions of how to respond. That is dramatically different. And it is the fingerprint of God through the rest of His storyline with His people. 
rather than you trying to find a way, I will show you the way. That's why we're here today. That's why we've shared in communion. That's why before Ash uh, prayed, he reminded us that we're doing this because God said in Jesus, do this until I return. There's a dramatic difference that we see in the sacrifice of God's people from the surrounding cultures. And yet at the same time, there is a common factor. And the common factor is the recognition of our guilt. So that's the first thing that we see. Whether we are responding in a Hebrew stroke Christian perspective, or whether we look across the whole of the emergence of people groups across the world, we always see this issue, the troubling issue of our conscience. Sin is a big issue. Now, let let me say that again. Sin is a big issue, full stop. Whether we're Christians, whether whatever religion we are, whatever historical culture we have emerged from, there is this deep-seated response that we are not right. God goes on a little bit further in this. There is this recognition in the opening line there that it is possible to sin unintentionally. See that? When anyone sins unintentionally, now, that is stark for us. If one, there is that one experience of those things that we know and are conscious of, what in unintentionality does, it, re, it reveals the true nature of who we tend to be. That there is this experience that we tend to go unintentionally in directions that we had no desire to go in, and yet we do. And so that's the first point I want to just draw out, that there is the real issue that this is not about the kind of um, game of top trumps, that my sin is that big, so I'll throw down another card in a sacrifice which is bigger than the sin that I am conscious of. This is the reality of our experience, that we are, by nature, unintentional sinners. So that's the first thing that we see. The next thing that we see is something which is dramatic. Look at what it says in verse 3. If the anointed priest sins, bringing guilt on the people, he must bring to the Lord a young bull without defect as a sin offering for the sin he has committed. A priest who has sinned. I haven't been watching it. Maybe some of you have been watching the recent series, Britannia. It's a a kind of historical drama, a big stage drama, and uh, it's it's portraying the uh, Roman conquest of of Britain. There is a character that I was reading in that that cast. His name is Varan. He's actually Gareth out of the office. Uh, the guy who plays it, but he doesn't look anything like him. He's this strange, uh, hairless, kind of uh, skin misshapen 
enigmatic Druid priest. When you read about the storyline that goes on, it reveals something about the ingrained human nature to look to a priest. This character, Varan, stands in this place between the gods and the people. And he virtually is unchallengeable because he has the virtue of the gods. He is this all-powerful perspective. And yet what we have here is a strange question mark for us to address. In that ancient world, what do we do if our priest, who is just like you and me in all of those normal ways, what if he sins? What if the priest who stands between heaven and earth on our behalf, what if he sins? If the priest sins, we've got no chance. And yet God says, but there is a way. Even if the priest sins. But there is something else that the priest might do. A priest who sins unintentionally, not just sins, but does something. He brings guilt on the people. That is mind-blowing, isn't it? In our world of individuality, that kind of corporate identity, that sense of belonging is so alien to us. We don't get that. We don't get that idea of belonging in such a way where the one who stands in between on our behalf might bring guilt on us by his sin. That's breathtaking, isn't it? That's how critical, that's how dramatic the role of a priest is. That's what God says. His role is so dramatically important as He stands in our place that if He sins, it's not just an issue for Him, it's an issue for us as well. Because He brings guilt on the people because of His sin. Why? Because that's the only way that we can get to a holy God. It's the only way that we can engage in that way. So what is the priest to do? We've been covering this and there's all sorts of butchery going on and and, and all sorts of stuff that we've covered in previous sessions. I just want to draw our attention to one particular thing, this corporate response of the priest. He does something. Look look at verse 5 and 6. For the first thing, let, let's go to verse 4. He, is, he must bring to the Lord a young bull without defect as a sin offering for the sin he has committed. He is to present the bull at the entrance of the tent and meeting before the Lord. He is to lay his hand on his head and slaughter it there before the Lord. That's what we've got right the way through all of these sacrifices uh, in, the, in the Old Testament. We've got this picture of death before God. Death before God is the abiding theme. But in this case, he does something different. When he has slaughtered it, the anointed priest shall take some of the bull's blood and carry it into the tent of meeting. He is to dip his finger into the blood and sprinkle some of it seven times before the Lord in front of the curtain of the sanctuary. That is a strange world, isn't it? 
It's a world of imagery. It's a world of physical things which tell us stories about what God is like. I want you to just for a moment walk with me into a place where we would not be allowed. Let's walk into the holy place, the place where the priest goes. Where we can't go, we can't go because the priest goes there for us. Because that's what's needed, somebody to stand in our place. And the priest goes in, he takes some of this blood that has been slaughtered, and he steps into the holy place with the blood, and there right before us is a great curtain, and then we stop. Because that great curtain behind there is the symbolic place where God dwells with us, and we can't go there. And we can't go there because of sin. But the, what does the priest do? He takes some of the blood, and in a way he, say, he brings that blood and he says, I'll sprinkle that blood at the curtain of that holy place. It's as if the priest is saying, I'm going to take that blood and place it before a holy God. Sprinkle it. In the ancient world... There was no such thing as powerful detergents. Once you got blood on garments or cloth, it was there for good. It was marked. And that curtain would be permanently marked by the blood that was sprinkled before it and splashed onto the curtain and on the step before that curtain. And there is a permanent mark of the blood which is marking that desire for a response by God to forgive us for the priest's sin. See what I said there? To forgive us for the priest's sin. Because it's the priest who has sinned here. He's brought guilt on us and the priest says because of that There is a way for this to be resolved, but it takes blood. I'm going to go into the holy place of God. I can't fully go in there, but I'll sprinkle the blood at the curtain. And God has said, when you do that, you will be forgiven. It's not just a a desperate hope. It's not an angst-ridden desire that maybe my guilt will be forgiven. Why do I know that? Why why are we not making up something that looks good that God might accept? Because God has said, this is what you're to do. Therefore, if God says this is what you're to do in this particular situation, it's because He's saying, because this will work. This means that you're forgiven. You go into this place, you do this, and your guilt is washed away. That is great news. I want you to imagine what it might have been like in the gathering of God's people where we suddenly find out that a priest has unintentionally, unintentionally sinned and in that moment all of the guilt is on all of us. And then we hear that the priest has carried blood before the curtain and sprinkled it And then we breathe a sense of shalom, a sense of wellness before God 
because God is once again reconciled with us. The priest has forgiven us. So in a one sense, we take some of the animal, we sprinkle it at the gate, at the curtain, we burn some on the altar, and then look what happens next. The priest who bears the sin sprinkles the blood, but next the priest who has sacrificed the animal takes it outside of the camp. Look at verse 11 and 12. But the hide of the bull and all its flesh, as well as the head and legs, the internal organs and the intestines, that is all the rest of the bull, he must take outside the camp to, place, uh, to a place ceremonial, ceremonially clean, where the ashes are thrown and burn it there in a wood fire on the ash heap. That is so specific, isn't it? So absolutely clear. God is saying, when there's a problem, don't make up things to try to be resolved. Here's the way. You sprinkle some blood you sacrifice the fat on the altar and then you take the rest of the beast outside of the camp. What goes outside of the camp? The diseased, the dead, the stuff that will infect the camp goes outside of the camp and is destroyed so that the camp might be clean. Have you ever watched The Island of Bear Grylls? Do you know what? Every time it comes on, I think to myself, I would love to do that. I would just, I would love to do that. To survive on an island. That would just be my idea. Some of you are thinking he's bonkers. He's nuts. I would love that idea. But once, what's one of the key things in surviving in a camp? You've got to keep the camp clean. Because if disease enters the camp, if the dead enters the camp, the camp is in trouble. And therefore, we have this picture of sacrifice which says part of it is blood which is before God and part of it is put outside as something which protects us from that dead, horrible stuff, that disease-ridden thing. And so we have this picture this meticulously designed activity which God has said, this is what you are to do when you've sinned unintentionally. This is what you are to do when the priest sins unintentionally. If you read on, you, re you will read that if you or I had sinned unintentionally, the same thing would happen. If a leader had sinned unintentionally, the same thing would happen. There is a resolution for the unintentional nature of ourselves. I think in the 21st century, that is incredibly powerful. We are looking all the time for a response, a way to resolve our inner angst. The inner us, that, that niggling, we can't solve it, problem within us. Now... There is a huge amount that I love and treasure and value in our recognition of the desire to build ourselves up in one sense in our humanity. There's a lot of that 
where people have been so badly damaged and hurt by other people, a sense of their identity, a sense of their value it is something to be treasured. However, that only goes part way. We have made a switch in our culture. At least what all of the ancients understood was that our inner problem can't be resolved from within. They went outside and they recognized that sacrifice was a cost to be made. In our world, we've got away from that. We think we can resolve it ourselves. And the message of the Bible, the message of Jesus is stop looking inside of yourself for resolution. Look outside of yourself because God has given resolution. That's what it's all about. There is hope, not within, without. Let me tell you now, I am so thankful for that. Because if hope was in here, I really know I'm in trouble then. I really know I am in deep trouble. I cannot ultimately resolve myself. I can get some way, and a lot of that is really helpful, but it doesn't solve the really deep issues. That sense of guilt, that sense of shame. We say we should be able to forgive ourselves, but the problem is that we have all done and said and thought things which we know we cannot forgive ourselves for. That's what it is to be human. So we've entered into this strange world. A world which we don't inhabit now. 1,500 years before Jesus. You know, one of the things that I, I was pondering about this the other day, J.K. Rowling and the Harry Potter books. Seven books, 1997 to 2007, written over 10 years, released over 10 years. They were a phenomenal success. The storyline is absolute genius. They captivated not just the nation, they captivated the world. I ask myself, why, why is it that that storyline captivated us? And I think at least part of it is this. There was a cohesion between book one to book two to three, four, five, six, seven. It told a whole story. It took 10 years to tell the story, but the whole thing made sense. It was genius, wasn't it? It wasn't just another throwaway. You know, if you, let's be honest, 1977, the first Star Wars movie came out. For Star Wars aficionados, for many that is still the Star Wars film. What we've done is we've kind of built loads of stories on from that, and then because we can't quite work out what to do next, we tell a story that was before it, and then we fill a few extras in between that, and we, we mishmash it around. What we've got with Harry Potter is just this continuous story unfolding. That is what God has done over 1,500 years. He has told a story which unfolds. 
so that this strange world of a sacrifice in a tent with the presence of God and blood being sprinkled makes sense 1,500 years later when Jesus comes into this world. It's what makes this story worthwhile. It's what connects. Listen to this. Number one, a priest who sins we've got here. A priest who sins. And then we've got a priest in Jesus who never sins, but becomes the representative of bearing sin. Where does that sin come from? From you and me. He unintentionally, yet intentionally, becomes the bearer of our sin. Worked out 1,500 years after this. A priest who has sinned brings a sacrifice. And our priest who bears our sin becomes the sacrifice. What a difference. And yet what an astounding connection to a group of people who were wandering the desert after leaving Egypt 1,500 years just less earlier. The priest who brings the sacrifice becomes the priest who is the sacrifice. A priest who sprinkles blood at the curtain of the, of the holy place. That's what we've got here. The priest takes some blood, he goes towards that holy place where God is present and he sprinkles it at the curtain. What does our priest in Jesus do? As his blood is being shed on the cross, a few hundred meters away, literally, the curtain bursts open. And the blood of Jesus breaks through into the holy place. There's no longer any sprinkling. This tentative hope, this tentative belief, it's a confidence that this blood can burst into the holy place where God is present. And then a priest who takes the death emblem the diseased outside of the camp and burns it becomes the priest who is the sacrifice who is outside of the camp, outside of the city wall. He, isn't it astounding? You know, J.K. Rowling did a great job over 10 years with everything in her mind. But God has done this over 1,500 years, over a plethora of writers in three different languages so that you and I can come here today and we can say the sacrifice of Jesus makes sense of this. And yet there's a problem. There is still a problem. What when the priest sins again? What when the priest sins again? There's another bull. It's sacrificed. And the priest goes once again into the holy place 
and He sprinkles some blood, and once again we are forgiven. And then in another six months, He realizes He has unintentionally sinned again, and He takes another beast, and it's sacrificed, and blood is shed, and more blood is spattered on the steps and on the curtain of the holy place, and we are once again resolved. And then six months later, another priest realizes that he has sinned, and another beast is slain, and more blood is sprinkled, and more carcass is burnt outside of the city, and it goes on and on and on and on. And then we read this in Hebrews about Jesus. Day, listen to this. I think this is, you know when we think all of those strands come together and it's amazing. Look at this in Hebrews. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again he offers sacrifices which can never take away sins. Isn't that massive? God is saying, what I have given you there is a picture of the problem of sin, but it can never, never adequately deal with sin. You go through the routine. Day after day, the priest comes and he sacrifices again. But when this priest, Jesus, has offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. That's what this resurrection day means. The moment when Jesus rises again and is seen enthroned at the right hand of the heavenly place and he has sat waiting, and he is doing something. He is making those who participate in that one sacrifice holy again. That's why I said right at the beginning, all of us in here are either observers or participants. We either are participating in the belief that this sacrifice, this one priest, who becomes the sacrifice, who lives again on this resurrection day, is saying that's it. There is no more sacrifice because it has been done. Your sin, the issue of your guilt, is resolved. Do you know what? I need to hear that because I get back thinking about my guilt and my sin way too often. It consumes me at times, and I forget to realize and remember and hold on to the one sacrifice. It's done. It's finished. Isaac Watts put it like this. Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. But Christ the heavenly Lamb, takes all our sins away. A sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. My faith would lay her hand on that dear head of thine while like a penitent I stand and there confess my sin. That 
is the greatest of hope. No more sacrifice. It has been done because Jesus has risen. You see, in the resurrection and the seating of Jesus, we see the final sacrifice once for all. A body discarded outside of the camp lives. The body discarded outside of the camp lives. Death is defeated. Now death, where is your, stri- your sting? Our resurrected king has rendered you defeated. forever. He is glorified forever. He is lifted high. Forever He is risen. He is alive. He is alive.